You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're in 1 Thess 5. Last time, two weeks ago, Paul was talking about the afterlife and just this sense of if you're going to live your life for God and you're going to live life God's way, that is an other-centered perspective where you're considering the needs of others as more important than yourself. And that's really difficult to do if all you can see is your own need and you're living in this insecurity of knowing, are you going to be okay? If you feel like you may not have enough, how are you going to concern yourself with the lack of what others have? And so the whole teaching was really just about this idea that we have to understand that our future hope in eternity is with God where all of our needs are met. We're going to suffer here. There's going to be difficulties in this life. That's going to happen. But in the end game, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have won at the game of life because you are promised and secure in eternity with him. And that that hope is what enables us to get the focus off of ourselves and on to other people. He talks about it in terms of being freed from the slavery of the fear of death, that we're no longer living in constant fear of what's going to happen to us. And this enables us to live this other-centered life. And then at the end of four and the beginning of chapter five, he gets into this topic that theologians call eschatology, which is just a fancy word for saying the study of the end the end of the world, the end times. The Bible has something to say about the whole scope, the whole course of human history and the way that things are gonna go. And it seems really scary and there are definitely some really bad things that happen in there, but this is actually supposed to be a part of our hope as well. Knowing that in the end, that things are gonna go from bad to worse, but in the end, will be glory. And that that hope, that understanding, that we can look out and we can see the progression of human history and know that it ends in victory with the destruction of evil and the restoration of justice is a hope that we're intended to to grasp onto and that should impact and affect the way we live. So we get to 1 Thess chapter 5, and he says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well what the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. Now this is interesting for a number of reasons, but the thing that I want to draw your attention to is Paul did not have a lot of time to spend in Thessalonica. He was not there very long. And these are brand new believers. And he thought the need to teach them about eschatology in the end times was something that brand new believers should know full well. This is not advanced Christianity. This is basic understanding of the epochs and the times and the plans of God. This is an important part of our faith in understanding what is to come and what our role in it is. And I thought that was 
interesting that he'd been there only for a short few weeks and he's trying to feed them through the fire hose of all the information they need to know about the teachings of Jesus Christ. And when he writes to them some months later after being with them for a short time, he's like, you guys already know all about the end times, but let me remind you. And so this basic eschatology is an important part of our Christian faith. And what I want to do is he covers basically three major events. This is as complicated as you want to get, guys. And we've got 30 minutes. So all I want to do is touch on the three major events that he touches on in the passage and try to give you a basic groundwork for understanding the flow of what seems to be the best explanation we can give you about where things are headed. Those three things are the rapture, which we already touched on two weeks ago, what the Bible calls the tribulation or the great tribulation, and the return of Christ. Now, there's a lot more to eschatology in the end times than these three things, but these are sort of the three major waypoints that we could talk about in the broadest sense to get some understanding so that we're like they are, where we can know full well what the plan of God is. The rapture is Jesus will gather up all believers, both the living and the dead. And it sounds real weird because it is. It's the idea that we will all, all the believers on earth, both alive and dead, will ascend into the heavens and meet Jesus there. And you say, okay, that sounds like some superstitious, crazy stuff. And it is crazy. But if you believe in the all-powerful creator God of the universe who spoke the universe into being, who said, let there be light, and then there was the sun and all the stars in the universe, who raised Jesus from the dead, and that Jesus himself ascended bodily into heaven, then this isn't that much of a stretch. I'm not saying we need to be comfortable with it, but we need to have it in the larger context of we're dealing with extraordinary events. Things that have been foretold, but from a perspective and from people who saw some of these kinds of extraordinary events in their lifetimes. The word rapture comes from the Latin raptus, which just means to be caught up. And so we're talking about literally the, the living and dead believers at a certain time, we're just gonna be out of here. We will be here and then suddenly we will not be here. We're hitting the eject button. And that God has promised that that is something he's gonna do. It's not talked about a lot. There's not a ton of information about this. One of the best passages is our passage from last week, 1 Thess 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voices of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. He's like, bad stuff is gonna happen, so I'm gonna come pull you guys out literally and bodily before the end comes. 
Another passage that we have on this is 1 Corinthians 15, 50-53. He says, Now I say this, brethren, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be all changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must put on the imperishable, and that this mortal must put on immortality. He's like, listen, I know this is weird, and it sounds strange, but it's going to happen. There's going to be a loud trumpet noise and the dead are going to be raised and then all the rest of us believers are going to be changed and swept up into the rapture. So one big question would be, when does that happen? We're now 2,000 years into the church era, the post-Christ era, and it hasn't happened yet. So when is that going to happen? It's a topic of heavy debate among scholars. There's so little information about this that there is a lot of room for discussion about at what point in history this happens, what exactly it looks like, what it will do. But I would argue, and a lot of scholars would agree with me, that the evidence points to the rapture will happen before the Great Tribulation. Now, we don't say this because... uh, we think God would never let us suffer. We know that he does. And we don't say this because we think it would be evil for God to let us stay here during the great tribulation. God is good and God does what he does. And there are people living right now, Christians living right now that are going through things as bad as the tribulation will be. We say this because there are some verses that tend to hint to the timeline being that the rapture will precede the tribulation. One of them's in First Thess. We'll look at that in a minute. But we don't have time to go into all the detail. This is where if we had a 50-minute teaching, we could get into that. So I'll just take, take LTC 1. <laughs> Leadership training class. We have great classes, and our LTC classes are going to be coming back online this spring. And if you haven't taken them, you should take this one because it's the first one. And it has a lot more detailed explanation of this kind of thing. So it seems as though, it appears as though the rapture happens, then there's this seven-year period known as the tribulation where there's an incredible amount of suffering and turmoil on earth. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. He says, then they will deliver you to the tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. So the Christians are taken up and then the Christians are persecuted. How does that work? That's kind of a confusing thing if you think about it. If every Christian on earth is raptured, then who are the Christians that are persecuted? Who's the you will be hated and persecuted? Well, I think the best explanation for this is simply... There's a lot of us on earth right now telling a lot of people about Jesus Christ and talking to them about what's going to happen and talking to them about what the Bible teaches. And when we all mysteriously disappear, that will be a powerful piece of evidence that the Bible is right and there will be lots of Bibles unused lying around. I think that a lot of people are going to come to Christ as a result of the rapture 
because they're going to know there was this Christian and they were always talking to me about Jesus and God's love and the cross and they're gone. With many millions of other people from the earth, they've just simply disappeared. Or maybe they'll be like, I watched my neighbor fly up into the sky. I heard a trumpet. So I went over and got their Bible and started reading it. Here's why this is important. Sometimes people look at the end times and they think about things like, well, I don't like the judgment of God. And I don't like the idea that God is gonna judge the wicked, you know, because I'm not a perfect person. I've had a lot of problems in my life. And what kind of God would judge the wicked? But the thing that you need to understand is God again and again and again pleads with the people of earth. He's pleading with the people of earth right now through you and me. We're here as ambassadors for Christ, telling them, you gotta learn about Jesus. Let me show you the evidence from my Bible. And then before the end of the world comes in destruction and the judgment of evil, all the people who have been talking about the fact that this is gonna happen are gonna be swept up and taken away. If that doesn't convince you, then it says in the end end times, before the evil or people are judged, It says that there's going to be an angel in the sky blaring the gospel to all who would believe. So the people who get judged are people who were like, I don't care that those Christians flew away into the sky. And I don't care that everything in the Bible has come true. And I don't care that there's an angel standing in the sky proclaiming the gospel in the language of every person and their native tongue, I still refuse to believe. I'd like to think there'd be very few people in that category at this point. But this is, this is not where this just happens. It's God gives evidence upon evidence upon evidence. But he doesn't force you to believe. He says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. These are the guys that come up and they say, it's a, it's a hoax. Uh, that those guys weren't really Christians. They were followers of my religion. They try to twist it and spin it and convince people that it's not real. And uh, you're stupid if you believe in this and all that kind of stuff. The false prophets rise up and they start working against this incredible thing that God has done. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So even after the rapture, it's not too late. It's not too late to come into a relationship with God. It's not too late to be used by God. And there'll be all this calamity. And a lot of people really grasp onto this, and I understand why. They talk about, it seems like our love is growing cold. And I think we all can witness and and testify the time that we live in seems like people's love is growing cold. We're becoming more rigid. We're becoming more weaponized, more extreme, more polarized, more tribalized, more radicalized. There's very little love for our neighbor. Now, I'm not saying that means it's the end time. I'm just saying that that is the trajectory. I think we, in our time, can have a sense of how all of this could play out in a way that maybe we wouldn't have 30 or 40 years ago. I don't know when the end times are going to come. No one does know. 
It could be tomorrow. The rapture could happen tomorrow. And then the tribulation could start. Or it could happen a thousand years from now. And we don't want to be in the category of people who make those kinds of mistakes. You know, I think I'm, I was a history major. I, I like history. And I think if I had been alive during World War II and saw what Hitler was doing, trying to take over the world, I'd be like, we're out of here, guys. Run up your credit cards. We're gone. You know, and that would have been a big mistake, wouldn't it? So I think, you know, even though we live in the time of crazy climate change and COVID-19 and radicalized politics, you know, this is the kind of thing in history, these things can build up and then they can deflate. We don't know when it's going to happen. The seven-year period, though, the Great Tribulation, I think begins after the rapture, and it's characterized by man's inhumanity to man. The downward moral spiral of the human race and our love for one another and for what's good and what's just and what's righteous becomes more and more increasingly corrupt. And Christians, the people who come to Christ during this period are harshly persecuted. They're murdered for their faith. They're hunted down and killed. And we see both God's active and passive judgment on man. And I think that's an important distinction for us to understand too. The active judgment of God is like turning Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. That's the real bad, God's gonna zap you, active judgment of God. That is exceedingly rare in the Bible almost never happens. What does happen is God withdraws his protection and that's considered to be the passive judgment of God where God lets us do what it is that we do and that causes great pain and calamity and God sort of just slowly lifts the restraints. He, he's been protecting us and as we get closer and closer to the end, God allows our free will to cause more terror and destruction upon our fellow man. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21 and 22. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world. Something is gonna happen that is so bad, it's never been this bad before. It's never occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. This is gonna be the worst time in history ever to live on the earth. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. That's an interesting thing to write when the most technologically advanced weapon on the earth is a spear. But it's not that crazy now. That's why, you know, you think about things like the rapture, that sounds crazy. And, and it does. But this would have sounded a lot more crazy to them. How could all life on earth be wiped out? How does that even happen? All life? In the nuclear age, though, this seems like not only is it a possibility, it's a probability, given the amount of time, eventually that stuff's going to be unleashed. And it could have this kind of cataclysmic effect on all life on earth. And the good news is, is that God's not gonna let that happen. The bad news is, is he's gonna let it come right up to the brink of that. 
It's like man's inhumanity to man. God's passive judgment, he lifts the restraints and he lets us go and do what it is that we do. And things get so bad, we're about to literally destroy all life on earth. Then God blows the whistle, says, time out, foul. I won't let you do it. And he intervenes. Which if you think about that, there's great hope in that. I think there are millions of people who are living who are watching what's happening in the world and they're saying this is not going to end well. And they believe maybe something like this will happen. We actually will wipe ourselves out. And as Christians, we have a little bit of a different understanding of that. It's gonna get bad and it's gonna get really bad. But the human race will never be wiped out. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will never be destroyed. And there will come a time where God ends the human experiment and brings all those who are willing back into the fold. And that's something that is actually very good news because the alternative is total annihilation. That's when Jesus comes back. Rapture, the great tribulation, things get so bad, we're about to destroy ourselves. God blows the whistle, Jesus returns. And this time he doesn't just meet believers in the sky, he returns to put an end to all evil and injustice on the earth. And it says that his return will be in unmistakable. That's something that I think is important that we understand because you know sometimes in the movie it's like, oh, a baby will be born and that will grow up to be Jesus. No, that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is Jesus was born as a baby once. He grew up, he got to about 33 years old. We crucified him. He was put in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. He went around for a few weeks teaching people, proving that he was the son of God. And then he ascended bodily into heaven and it's bodily he's gonna come back down. And when he comes back down, there's gonna be no mistaking the fact that he is Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, 27, just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of son of man. He will be as unmistakable as a lightning bolt. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. You know, it's like when you see a bunch of vultures circling in the sky, you're like, something died. There's no doubt about it. Jesus' return will be obvious to everyone. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You have no chance of missing Jesus' return. At that time, it says, evil will cease, order will be restored, and it will culminate in the judgment of God's enemies, the destruction of those who live through all of this and still shake their fist and say, I will not believe in you. God says, then you have to pay for your own sin. And the penalty of sin is death. God will not force us to accept his forgiveness. He will plead with us. He will give us evidence. He will give us kindness and he will give us mercy. But he will not force us to kneel like some kind of corrupt Roman emperor. 
But the result of not submitting to God is paying the price for your own wickedness, which is something none of us here wants to do, none of us here wants any one of you to do, and God doesn't want any one of you to do. First Peter says, God is not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient with you, desiring all people to come to a knowledge of him. But just because he wants that to happen doesn't mean he will make that happen. Free will plays a big role here. Well, why is this so important? What, what, is the, what is the takeaway here? Well, it's a critical part of our hope. This is not a sad story. This is a victory story. It has scary elements, and it's difficult to swallow in some ways until you accept the idea that there is such a thing as the supernatural, and there is such a thing as an all-powerful creator. Once you put that variable into the equation, anything can happen. Once you examine the evidence of the prophets and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the historical evidence of the Bible, it starts to take on some serious weight. And if you begin to allow yourself to connect with this and believe this, you will actually find it is something that you look forward to because it means there will be no more evil, no more injustice. All the things that we look out into the world and say it should not be that way, those things will be gone. And if you believe that, if you know that, it arms you to be able to withstand the suffering that you've got in your life right now. If you know the end of the story is in victory, then you cannot be defeated. All you have to do is persevere. If good prevails over evil and generosity prevails over selfishness, and everything will set right, then all we have to do is hold on, knowing that it'll be okay. The end of all suffering. Can you imagine it? No one's starving. No one dying. No one lying. No one cheating. No one killing. No one raping. No one starving. Everyone having everything that they need and being able to freely, unashamedly express themselves for who they really are. There will be no need for guile and putting on fronts and wearing masks and hiding who we really are. We will be known and fully known by God and to one another with no needs. But there will be relationships and we will retain our individuality. And we will be connected with our creator. And we will enjoy what it says is a new heaven and a new earth. One that doesn't blow down our tents in ice storms. One that doesn't give us cancer. One that doesn't kill children. A perfect life. That's what we're promised. He says back in 1 Thessalonians 4.2, he says, For you yourselves full know that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Matthew 24.44, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. 
But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. This is why when the crackpots come in and say, the end of the world is going to be April 1st, 2023, give me all your money. You're going to be like, mm-mm. No one knows, even Jesus doesn't know, the Father alone knows. No man, no angel, no spirit, and Jesus himself don't know when this is going to happen. We just know it is. There are two conditions, though, that must be met. We know this from Scripture. Anything I tell you here that's not in the Bible, throw away. Okay? But the Bible does say there's two things that have to happen before any of this starts. The gospel must be preached to all nations. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. What's difficult about that is, what does he mean by all the nations? Does that mean every continent, every country, every language, every culture? We don't know. We know it hasn't happened yet, or we don't think it's happened yet. We don't know. But the world is becoming quite a bit smaller than it used to be. And there are very few places left where there hasn't been a Bible translated into their native tongue, where there haven't been missionaries sent. So this seems like this is, this is something that could be accomplished in our lifetime. That doesn't mean, if, even if this is accomplished in our lifetime, that we're gonna see the end times in our lifetime. But this is a condition, he says, the gospel must go out. Why? Why must the gospel go out? So that everyone has a chance to know and make a choice before the end comes. The information is available to everyone. God is good and God is just. That's one condition, though, that we can play a part in. That's something that we, we, have, we can actually do. And that's why we're here. That's why we invite people and why we share and why we send missionaries all over the world. That's why we do this. Because this is our part and it has to happen before the end. The second is a wonderfully named thing called the abomination of desolation. It's just fun to say. Abomination of desolation. It sounds terrible and it is. Second Thess. Two, three, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself over every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. The end will not come until some maniac thinks he's God, convinces a whole bunch of other people he's God, and sets up a throne room for himself in the temple of God. Well, right now we don't have a temple of God. So we know this hasn't been fulfilled. We know this hasn't happened because the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt. In fact, there was a mosque built on top of it, which is the second holiest site in the Muslim religion, it's called the Dome of the Rock, that big gold dome you sometimes see when you see pictures of the city of Jerusalem. That's sitting in the only place that the temple of God can be, according to Jewish law. 
And there are people who have plans to knock that mosque down and build a temple. And this is maybe the most contentious point in the Middle East right now between the Jewish people and the Muslim people. So we have time to work on the first part, but when that mosque comes down and they start building a temple, get out your credit cards. <laughs> and you know, think about this in the scope of history and the whole situation. Think about this, reading this in 1930 when Israel wasn't even a nation. That, this would sound just as insane as the rapture, wouldn't it? You're telling me that the Jewish people who have no nation of their own, who have been dispersed throughout Europe in the Americas, are gonna regather, take over a part of the Middle East, create a new nation of Israel and build a temple? That sounds just as crazy as flying up into the sky. But here we are. We're not there, but we're sure a lot closer today than we were 100 years ago. And that's the point. There are things that we know must be completed. Those are the two big ones that are very clear from Scripture. The gospel to all nations, the abomination of desolation. It could very well happen in our lifetime. It could very well happen a thousand years from now. In 1 Thess 5, verse 3, he says, While they are saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. People will be in the dark. They are unaware and ambiguous about spiritual reality. They just have no clue, even though it's all right here in the Bible. The majority of people will have no understanding of the flow of human history, but there it is right in front of you. It's available to all. Most people don't know it. Some people who do think it's crazy and insane and superstitious, but they won't be able to read the signs. They won't be able to see it coming. They'll be caught off guard and they'll be surprised when it comes. That's definitely true. Think about our culture today. There are Christians talking about this, but very few people are listening. But you, brethren, he says, are not in darkness that that day would not overtake you like a thief, for you are all the sons of light and the sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be sober and alert. Our job is to maintain a state of readiness. Here's the reality. I've said this many times. Let me say it one more time. I don't know if this is gonna happen in our lifetime, or I don't know if it's gonna happen a thousand years from now, but I know you and I have maybe 70, 80 years if we're lucky. Do we live like that's the amount of time we have a difference to make in eternity? If you knew the end times were gonna come 50 years from now, you knew that for sure, would it change the way that you're, you're living your life? Do you realize that death is definitely coming for you 50 years from now? A little more, a little less in some of our cases? Our time here is short. Whether the end times are a part of that or not is kind of irrelevant because our participation in it is right now. And are we gonna stick our head in the sand and just go with the flow and live like everyone else lives or are we gonna stand up and make the most of the time that we have to do something? 
You guys know I love Charles Spurgeon. He's a little dramatic for the modern reader, but so am I. He says, now Christians, this is your case. You live, your life is a life of warfare. The world, the flesh, the devil are our, a hellish trinity and your poor nature is a wretched mudwork behind which you, to be entrenched. Are you asleep? Asleep when Satan ha has fireballs of lust to hurl into the windows of your eyes? When he has arrows of temptation to shoot into your heart? When he has snares into which to trap your feet asleep? when he has undermined your very existence and when he is about to apply the match with which he would destroy you unless sovereign grace prevents. Oh, sleep not, soldier of the cross. To sleep in a time of war is utterly inconsistent. Great spirit of God forbid that we should slumber. That's the point. That's the point that Paul was making to the Thessalonians, these brand new baby believers. He said, Sleep not. Have your eyes wide open to the reality. The things that we can do right now, we can come into a relationship with God. We can ask God into our lives. We can ask him to forgive us for our sins. We can understand that Jesus died to pay for those sins. And we can come to him in faith just as we are. We can understand our time is limited. We, are, we have precious few years where we can fight this battle and we are on a battlefield. We should make the most of that time. We can teach others about God's word. We can explain. We can give them evidence. We can give them hope. We can give them truth. But we cannot make their decisions for them. We can pray that God will set things right. It's always fascinated me in the Lord's prayer. He prays, your kingdom come. Come back, oh God, and stop this madness. Because that's what it is. We can stand up against injustice. We can make a difference. We can be a light and a comfort to those who do not have, to those who are suffering. We can, in the name of God, demonstrate his mercy and love and kindness to the poor, to the ravaged, to the helpless, and we can ease the suffering of others. That's what I've got. Why don't I just pray for us? God, thank you for this time here together. Thank you for this warning that is also an encouragement. Thank you for the hope and the glorious future that we are promised. Thank you for the evidence that you've given us that this is true. And we pray, God, for those who are wallowing in darkness and fear, who are afraid of death, who are afraid of what they see, who, who know that things are not right, for our coworkers and our neighbors and our family members who just feel sad and alone and concerned and don't have the answers. We pray, God, that you'll open doors of opportunity for us to love them, to share with them, to serve them, and to care. And we pray for a good night of fellowship here together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.